0: Of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis.
1: Hi, podcast listeners, this is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that is shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. QBAC is a next-generation advancement solution that reimagines alumni engagement to increase major planned and principal giving. QBAC acts as a force multiplier for fundraisers, enabling them to focus on what they do best, developing deep relationships with prospects and cultivating them into lifelong donors. QBAC automates the qualification process beyond simple scoring to ensure that your fundraisers have the best prospects. QBAC also uncovers actionable insights about current and future prospects to help fundraisers develop personalized cultivation strategies. Start closing bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Hi Cindy, I am delighted to have you on the Fundraising Talent podcast. You and I have not been on here together in about 2 years. You were at the uh we were at the uh Icon 2019 Icon conference when you and I first engaged. Uh we have yet to be physically in the same room, but not a lot of us have been in the same room with anybody in the last 2 years. Uh but I look forward to getting back up to your side of the uh map uh, eventually and perhaps you'll come down this way and we'll have coffee or lunch or something. Uh, But in the meantime, we're going to continue to get to know each other here. Cindy, before we dive into our conversation, which I'm very much looking forward to, how about we just ask you to introduce yourself to our listeners?
2: Absolutely. And I cannot wait for that coffee, Jason. Uh, (laughs) It's a long time overdue. So my name is Cindy Wagman. I'm the founder and CEO of The Good Partnership. And I'm on a mission to make fundraising accessible and fun for non-fundraisers. And before all of your listeners say, "Well, I'm a fundraiser. What does it have to do with me?" I guarantee they you, listeners, all have someone in your professional world who you need help with and they are a huge barrier to your fundraising success. Be it board members, staff, colleagues, volunteers, we've all dealt with those reluctant fundraisers and I think we've all been dealing with it the wrong way. So that's my mission.
1: Reluctant. I have heard that phrase a couple of times, probably more. Maybe you're the one putting it out there. (laughs) The notion of a reluctant fundraiser. Let's unravel that for a moment Mm -hmm. before we dive into our conversation. What is a reluctant fundraiser? I love it. I like it. I might even use it. But what does that mean?
2: You're welcome to it. So (laughs) usually... so I personally chose to be a fundraiser professionally. I decided when I was in second year of my undergrad program at university, that this is the career I wanted and I pursued it. And when I've been at conferences or other professional settings, we're all teaching fundraising to people who have raised their head and said, yes, this is my career. Yeah. And unfortunately, unfortunately, the the reality is most of the people who are shouldered with the responsibility of fundraising in our sector which is predominantly made up of smaller organizations or organizations where there's one maybe two fundraising staff they have to rely on people who have been shouldered with this responsibility and really would rather do anything but that's executive directors, that's board members. Uh, In small organizations, it could be programming staff. You know, these are people who do it. Well, they don't do it. That's the bottom line. They, They think that they should be doing it and they think that they're trying to do it. But at the end of the day, they're really not getting much done. And that's a reluctant fundraiser.
1: I listen, I'm, a, um, I'm getting better at listening to language because as a writer, you have to, you know, language is very useful. So you can also call them the anything but yes. fundraiser. Right? Exactly.
2: <laughs> like the board member who's like, yeah, I'll do anything. Give me any work but right. fundraising. Ugh. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. icky and I don't like it.
1: And is it part of the... Okay, so from my vantage point and yours, isn't part of our challenge in where the fundraising community finds itself right now, that in some ways we've, like, you and I have a lot of colleagues and a lot of people who've sort of come before us that essentially were anything but fundraisers. They've tried every possible way to basically make the work not look like fundraising, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, isn't that kind of our challenge?
2: (laughs) So definitely we're part of the problem there's yeah. also like I went and spoke at the at a fundraising uh, college diploma here in Toronto, and yeah. when I asked the students who were studying fundraising, what they wanted to do, what jobs they wanted. Most of them said they wanted to do stewardship. Like yeah. there's all these myths around <laughs> right. asking, and we, you know, and they've been perpetuated by our professional community by and large, and by what yes. we think of as newsworthy or, you know, the gold standard of fundraising. It's perpetuated this. I mean. I'll I'll borrow from you this sort of um this curtain like pull back the curtain and yes. you know there's all this mystery and secrecy and you know magic that goes into this work and so we create barriers or we also have perpetuated this idea that you know the only gifts worth pursuing are the really big ones those are the ones that make the news or we have to have these really expensive galas or some people say galas. And yeah. so these all perpetuate these stories or beliefs that we've created in culture, and society generally, about what fundraising is. And they're almost always wrong for reluctant fundraisers and or smaller organizations.
1: Yeah. Well, we could have... I know you well enough. You know me well enough where we could just go. We could we could just sit on that for an hour. We could critique all of our <laughs> colleagues, piss a few of them off, uh, probably ensure ourselves that we wouldn't be invited back for something. But we won't do that. Um, Cindy, we ask our guests to come on with a big idea bold opinion. You've got a book coming out, so I'm assuming that we're going to talk about that. What do you got for us today?
2: Yeah. Well, the big idea is that we've been – trying to get these reluctant fundraisers to fundraise in all the wrong ways. And we cannot just tell them what to do and expect that to work, which is what I've seen right? Just please introduce us to this one person, pull out your Rolodex, which, you know, some people listening might not even know what that is, Uh, or sell, just sell these tickets. Why is it so hard to get you to sell five tickets to an event? But we keep trying to just break down the tasks and really what we have to start with. And this is where I am super excited about is we actually have to understand some neuroscience and start Mm -hmm. getting people to rewire their feelings and beliefs around fundraising before they can actually take any meaningful action towards those goals.
1: Okay. So this is the, I'm guessing we're going to talk about, I don't want to give away too much of the book, but I want to also sort of um tempt their appetite if that's the right mm-hmm. way to put it um so uh, i'm going to totally let you i don't i don't want to i don't want to ask the wrong questions and i uh but um what's the title of the book
2: yeah so the title of the book is called raise it the reluctant fundraiser's guide to raising money without selling your soul
1: okay so you've really gotten to know, first and foremost you've really thought about this uh the, 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 we're not we're not we you've really gotten to know this reluctant fundraiser first and foremost mm-hmm. Um, which is kind of where we where we started um, so what's the what's the underline what where are, we, where are you trying to get to with this book let 's go all the way to the end Where are you mm-hmm. all ultimately trying where are you trying to get the reader to?
2: Well, I want people to change the way they feel about fundraising i don 't want to walk into another room and introduce myself as a fundraiser and have someone cringe or say yeah. that might be hard. That must be so hard i don 't know how you do that but yeah. really what i want is to unlock funds and opportunities for organizations that are doing really good work in the world to actually be able to grow that work and impact and we have to we have to approach it differently
1: are we actually turning the are we actually turning the reluctant fundraiser into a more enthusiastic fundraiser or are we Some of what I find myself doing, and maybe it's just my style, uh, some people tell me that I've actually worked them out of fundraising. I mean, is that part of what you're trying to do? Or are we, the the other thing I'm trying, a lot of what I I find myself doing in some of these conversations, is the the reluctant fundraiser in your mind, Cindy, on this sort of what I would consider to be sort of an over-professionalized approach and not a immersed sort of field uh, in front of the donor sort of approach?
2: Mm. So maybe. Uh, maybe. Definitely okay. <laughs> when you said that, I could picture that that exact experience. I've, yeah. I've had board members say, we need a really polished case for support or just give me the pitch yes. document or I need the elevator pitch. And to me, that is one version of that reluctant fundraiser, but that's an excuse. That professionalization is – All of these things are excuses, whether it's I need these things or I don't know anyone who could give. I mean... I literally just created a whole list of uh, excuses we have. Um, We should focus on corporations or foundations because they have money or these people should give to us because they have excess money. Um, But also there's a whole other side of that, which is um, if we ask too much, we're going to look greedy or, you know, we're still in the pandemic as we're recording this, you know, people have, the the world is a hard place right now. We can't ask for money. So there's lots of different ways, but all of the excuses, when someone gives you an excuse as to why they're not fundraising, that's actually a little signal as to what their underlying feelings and beliefs are. And so what happens, and I'll dive into a little bit of the neuroscience because I think it's we're really used to hearing all those excuses, um, but we'd have to understand what's going on behind them. And our brain works in shortcuts. We make yes. tens of thousands of decisions every day, and we're not aware that we're actually making decisions. And these decisions or these shortcuts that our brains are making are designed to protect us. And there's some patterns to the types of ways our brain protects us. And so, for example, um, there is we have something called um, congruence bias, bias, which is basically if we've told ourselves the story that we're not good at fundraising, and that might be that we've seen fundraisers as outgoing or extroverted or salesy, and that doesn't feel like us, then we've told ourselves over and over again that, that we can't be good at fundraising because we're not like that. Now, you and I know that you don't have to be that way to be a good fundraiser, but it's not enough to just tell someone they're wrong because our brains actually seek and listen to and pay attention to information that reaffirms our beliefs, especially when it comes to our identity. And we actively, our brains actively, we're not aware this is happening, but they actively ignore information that doesn't fit with our self-identity. And I've had organizations where people will say, we're not good at fundraising, we're so bad. And objectively, I'll look at the exact same information and I'll say, actually, you're doing really well. So our brain distorts information to keep us safe and protected. I mean, there are so many, many examples of this status quo bias is another one I see a lot, especially Mm -hmm. at the board table. Mm -hmm. And so our brains prefer things to say this, to stay the same, even when the cost to change is small and the importance is high. So I'm going to repeat that because I think it's really important because sometimes we say, well, can't you see the upside? Like, isn't this so important that we need to do things differently We don't like change. So even when the cost to change is small, so sending an email, asking people for money or, you know, reaching out to a friend uh, just to ask for a conversation, a little act that is change can be very small and the importance could be really significant. So we might objectively be able to see that that person is a really great prospect. And in fact, they'd love to give to our organization, but the changing the way we act and behave is so hard that we just don't do it. And there are like tons of examples of how our brains are keeping us safe, protecting us, even, and just, I mean, quite frankly, being a little bit lazy, right? Our brains are des- designed to be able to make decisions quickly, and we get into routines and habits, and so we're not aware that this is happening over and over again, and it just becomes our, like I could call it autopilot. And we need to change the autopilot for people if we want to ch- see how they change their fundraising behaviors.
1: Okay. So let's sit on that for a moment. The every, so I've been the, the book project I've been recently been working on every time I um, I've, I've been working with um, I've been reading through uh, John Jost is a professor at NYU and he talks about what's called systems justification theory, systems justification theory. Oftentimes when it's being written about is written about the, these two notions of systems justification theory and status quo bias generally sort of are Arguing the same sort of thing, but where the syst- where the where the system's justification theory sort of goes a little deeper, Cindy, is that it's basically making the argument that the status quo bias has a far greater impact on those who are the most negatively affected by the system. So it's it's sort of taking the status quo bias a little further. Mm-hmm. What is what is it in your mind about? this status quo bias or in, in my case in what, in what Jost is talking about systems justification, what is it about fundraisers that we sort of, those of us who are the least likely to, the, those, those of us who are the least likely to benefit from questioning the system from questioning the status quo sort of causes us to just tolerate it. That's basically what these two arguments are sort of making. What is that about us?
2: Well, I would argue that that's experience. So I think that we've seen over and over again that the people who are most marginalized and oppressed by the systems have the least power and the most consequence when they do challenge them. And so, again, these um, biases, these shortcuts our brain has made, they're developed over repetition. And so if we constantly... Feel like we've tried to raise our voice, we've tried to change things, and people aren't listening, uh, or you know the systems are not in our favor. Our experience tells us that it's a waste of time, and so we stop trying.
1: So, so just like picking up the telephone call and knowing seven out of ten of your phone calls are not going to schedule a meeting is the same. What what you're getting at is is the idea that that knowing that seven out of 10 are not going to necessarily work sometimes eight out of 10 it's that same notion that trying to pull the gala or the golf tournament off the schedule is not going to work either and so we just keep leaning into that hoping that something miraculous is going to happen at that golf tournament Mm -hmm. that never happens is that is that basically what we're talking about because the status quo in fundraising is the gala and the golf tournament there's if there's anything that I'm guessing your clients and my clients are all sort of hearing from us. There's nothing wrong with these tools fundamentally, but it's sometimes you got to put them down.
2: Mm -hmm. And, and I've been at the board table trying to argue that we should get rid of the gala. And because I haven't been in a position of power, I haven't been able to influence. Well, there's lots of reasons that probably why I wasn't able to influence it. But you know there's lots of reasons why um everyone around me says "No, no, 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 and part of that also is comfort, right? There is comfort in the known we we've all heard the the saying, "The devil you know is better than the devil you don't know." Um, yes. and that's very true. We are creatures of habit, like, like going back to the way all those decisions we make every day, and there's like we're aware of about 35,000 decisions every day. Yeah. Now, there's about 90% of decisions we make every day that are we're not aware of. So, there's probably hundreds of thousands of decisions we make every day and so we can't spend energy trying to change all the things all the time. It's exhausting. Mm-hmm. It, our brains work harder. And so there is a lot of comfort and it's easier just to go with the status quo. But that's truly just one example of the kind of bias that we that we make, right? Change is hard. One of the reasons cha- change is hard is status quo bias. But if you layer that on top of some of the other biases, like the congruence bias or even negativity bias. So probably what someone – when you say we need to stop the golf tournament – a, change is hard. B, maybe one of your board members went to another golf tournament or, or saw another organization or they're on the board of another organization where they stopped their golf tournament and they lost all this money and you know, they couldn't figure out how to ge- generate that again. And so we look for information. Our brains overemphasize negative things and we yeah. underemphasize positive ones. And literally there are hundreds of these types of patterns of mental shortcuts that we're making. And they all work together or one at a time, but they all show up differently for people. Um, And they're layered there. And one of the reasons why it can be challenging to work with, for example, a board, they're all coming with their own biases. They're all coming with their own Feelings and beliefs around fundraising. So for some, it might be that they just don't like change. We know that. People just don't like change. But for some, it might be that they they grew up thinking that fundraising was someone writing a million-dollar check and getting their name on a building. And so when you ask them, oh, do you know anyone who can give? They say no, because they don't know anyone who can write a million-dollar check. And so each board member, and this is why I think it's, um hasn't been tackled thus far in our sector, is that each board member is or reluctant fundraiser is coming with their own story. And the work, it's not a simple fix. It's actually uncovering those stories for people and helping them rewrite them, which takes time and patience. Okay. Go back
1: to um, – so – I, I, you're you're a, you're a smart individual, and I know you look at this with a critical, careful, critical sort of lens that I do. <laughs> so remember back when the sort of the pandemic just sort of laid down on us; it just sort of came our reality overnight in mid twenty mid March, you know, mid March twenty twenty, right? And there were a lot of narratives, little. there were a lot of stories sort of playing out. I'm interested to sort of see where this reluctant fundraiser in your mind is Mm -hmm. sort of playing out because there were, I I think there were a lot of board meetings that happened in the later half of March, 2020, and then early April, where that question, remember that question of should we be fundraising Mm -hmm. sort of come up? And it was the question of should we be fundraising? And I haven't thought about this a whole lot, but there was something you just said a few minutes ago that got me thinking about this. The question was, should we be fundraising? And then there were a lot of us in our expertise seats saying, yes, you should be fundraising. And every time I heard that, I thought, I don't think that's the question that some of these reluctant board members or these reluctant fundraisers are actually asking they just don't know how to uh, the question i think they were asking was how should we be fundraising mm-hmm. right you fo- you follow the different. it wasn't it wasn't it wasn't whether or not you should or shouldn't it wasn't whether or not you obviously you couldn't put the event back on the calendar you weren't going to reschedule it at that time but but it was a how question where is that sort of falling into uh, all these sort of decisions where's that playing out in mm-hmm.
2: this so i actually the people i heard from we're truly asking, should we? In fact, they were not asking. They were saying, we should not be asking right now.
1: Right, right, we yes, yes. We should
2: definitively, it is not the right time. It is not <laughs> respectful. And yes. that to me, predominantly, and again, there's so many variations of this for individuals, but predominantly, that is based on the belief that people do not want to give their money to charities, that we're coercing them, that we're begging them. And yeah. or that there are more important things. I heard from a lot of arts and cultural organizations that we're not front lines, we're not saving lives, therefore, we're less important right now. So, those yeah. are the beliefs. Some of the beliefs, like I said, there's very many, but I actually heard from a lot of organizations, especially small ones, where people were definitively saying no. Right now. Yes. Maybe some of the bigger ones. They were saying, "How do we navigate this? How do we ask respectfully, or what's the right time?" But all of that is predicated on this belief that, in fact, we're not a priority for people, and people don't yeah. want to give. We're coercing them out of their money. Um, you know, it's not important when things get tough. And the what I experienced and I imagine what you experienced is the opposite. That people said, these are so important. We cannot lose these organizations, these institutions, these programs and services. Even the small arts organizations, you know, they are so much a part of our lives that we actually, and, and most places where they asked, they saw an increase in giving because people were very clear that this is actually really important to them.
1: Earlier, earlier, when it was some of your earliest remarks, I wrote down the word identity. Is some of this that we need to, when we bring a young fundraiser into the space, we have got to get them to begin to better wrestle with their identity, in particular, how it relates to people of wealth and how it relates to money? I mean, is that... Um, (laughs) when I hear somebody, when I hear somebody use the word identity, I mean, identity is a big word these days and I don't want to sort of hijack the notion of, um, we've all got to sort of, we got to attach yet more identities to ourselves, but it's, it's, it's more about is part of what you're getting at sort of understanding who you currently are, not reinventing, not creating new identities for ourselves but then understanding how that identity is going to pop up in these, in these sort of decision-making processes.
2: I mean, yes. And so the identity piece is so big and I have like a, uh, waterfall of ideas coming to me as you said that. So I'm going to try to tackle them. I mean, in terms of the young fundraisers or the ability to connect with donors and this, in my experience is not unique to young fundraisers. Yeah. I have spent most of my career in social justice based organizations mm-hmm. where in some we think money is bad. And so connecting with people who we perceive to be wealthy Uh, is very uncomfortable and we fundamentally there's, there's almost a distrust or a dislike. And so that's our identity. That's how we feel about money. That's how we feel about ourselves as maybe not having as much money and other people who maybe have more money. And obviously we know that people give at all income levels that philanthropy has in some ways nothing to do with wealth. Um, But, but, to And I've been in organizations. I, I feel like this is going to be a little bit of a rant, so I, I apologize. But no, That's been, what we
1: like. That's, <laughs> rants make for the best content yeah, on this yeah. show.
2: <laughs> I've been in multiple organizations where I've been told by the organizational leadership that such and, stuff, such and such staff person should not be in front of donors. They're not polished enough. They can't connect they're not you know they don't and again going back to that formality like they're not professional enough which nothing in my experience nothing could be further from the truth yes
1: absolutely yeah
2: but people donors and and donors care about the work that you're doing they care about the mission certainly the right ones for your organization should or i would say they're not the right donors for you your staff care just as much, if not more, and their passion can be con- contagious. And that's exactly what you want for your donors. And so if you think that this, you know, this identity of who can relate to to people with money, uh, I mean, that is such a fallacy in my experience. But mm-hmm. that's just one part of identity. I mean, there's, there's pieces around, um, you know, I've heard, I can't tell you how many people I've heard say, "Well, fundraising is just like sales." Right. Sure, but we don't like salespeople in society. Right. So that's yeah, not- we don't like right. Ex-
1: <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly right. I've I've heard that so many times. I've bantered it over and over with other people <laughs> on the podcast. But I'm like, do you, you? You're hinging on you're hinging it on yet something else that we all have issues with, right? Whether we're on the receiving or, sell, you know, regardless of which side of the exchange you're on, we don't like it.
2: We don't like it. And so when we have this identity of doing something that other people don't like or it's skill set that most people are deeply uncomfortable with, well, as as a fundraiser, you know, my identity is a little bit like, but then, for non-fundraisers or reluctant fundraisers well they're looking at you and being like i don't i don't want to be friends with that person or i don't want to interact with them because they're salesy that's sleazy yes. and yucky and i'm not <laughs> like that therefore i can't fundraise right
1: yes what what happens when so uh, my guess is is that we're m- most of our guests that are listening most of our audience that's listening today is probably less inclined to, I'm just making a, an assumption here, it could be completely wrong, but I, I'm guessing that we have equally as many people listening today that are are not themselves a reluctant fundraiser, but they are working for a reluctant fundraiser.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And, and part of what, and you know, the, the recent conversation or the steady conversation for the last several months has been this notion of the sort of this great resignation and and, and what concerns me about that whole notion about resigning post and perhaps therefore having to go look for another post is that in some cases we're just signing on with yet another reluctant fundraiser. We, you know, the the it's, it's the grass on the grass is greener on the other side sort of thing. But you're still working for a boss who really doesn't want to have anything to do with this. Um, do you want? A young fundraiser or even a talented you know, 10, 20-year 10, veteran to going and working for an ED who's never sort of gotten beyond their reluctancy when it comes to this stuff?
2: If, if they're up for it, I'd love for them to work on changing that, mostly uh-huh. because I know that some of the organizations that are doing the most important work are run by reluctant fundraisers. Okay. And so if you have the patience... And if you're willing to try this method, because it's not, again, like the old way of trying to convince your ED or board to to get on board with fundraising, it doesn't work and it's draining and soul sucking. But if you can take a step back and say, okay, wait, how do I pay attention to the cues that this my boss is telling me, like, what are they saying that gives me an indication around what their feelings and beliefs are around fundraising? So maybe it's that um, they feel like they can't be themselves around donors. And so I would craft a strategy to prove them wrong. But each executive director, each board member is going to be a little unique in their in their um, approach or in their hesitancy. And so you do have to pay attention and you do have to listen and look for those cues around what is this person saying or how are they behaving? And then what can I do and change that kind of the the neural pathways that we create through habits require habits to change. So it requires Mm -hmm. repetition. Mm -hmm. And so for example, Going back to the the one I just gave, if the board member, if the executive director thinks, well, I can't connect to these people, I have nothing in common with them or something like that, you need to work on disproving that over and over again. And so to me, that's doing a lot of listening with donors. And so maybe train that executive director, ha- have them go on a meeting with you with the sole purpose of getting to know a donor or even a perspective donor or sometimes it means just like a donor who gives you $25 a month. Someone who uh, like start to break away some of those bigger barriers and find those small steps that you can do to start to rewire their beliefs. Because you cannot just tell someone something, they will not believe it. You have to show them, repetitively and they will start to change the way they think about it. In fact, the neural networks uh, or pathways in their brain will be rewired. They will, new ones will be created and the old ones will eventually fade away.
1: Okay this is kind of a this is kind of a bunny trail, but i I, I want to sit on this that the, you and I might have an emerging theory between the two of us because you really caught my attention there. My impulse would be to not send a fundraiser to go work for a reluctant fundraiser, but your your first comment there, the idea that some of the organizations that are the most necessary. And I and I think I really agree with you that there's sort of an inverse relationship between the re- the likelihood that you're working for a reluctant fundraiser CEO and the likelihood that you're working for an organization that really matters. Why is that?
2: So, it, oh my goodness,
1: help me understand yeah. because I think you're exactly right. <laughs> I think you're talking about a CEO that is probably hell of determined to probably drill into an issue and change the world in a very meaningful way who's probably willing to go extremely systematic in the way that maybe you and I are thinking on the fundraising side on the actual mission side and I and I tend to want to be the very mission-centered sort of fundraiser yeah um wow you've got me a little stirred up there
2: (laughs) Awesome, I mean, (laughs) (laughs) this is this is it, right? And this is why I have such a problem with our sectors because we give up. We're like, uh, and we know it's frustrating. It's hard. I've been that fundraiser working in that environment, but at the same time, we know that those small organizations that are doing the important work very often, and I'm going to rant a little bit here too, but I know you love it. Um, Very often those are program people or founders who work their way up within the organization or they're subject matter experts, and they've never been given the tools to lead their organization and certainly never to fundraise effectively. Whereas at the, some of the bigger institutions, the more status quo, often the organizations we picture when we think of f- nonprofits, you know, the hospitals, colleges, universities, uh, all those organizations, they actually recruit people who have those skill sets. And so they come to the table with a very different understanding and approach. They are career executive directors or CEOs, whereas in my experience with smaller organizations, social justice-based organizations, they are recruited because they know the work and we 've never taken the time to really effectively train them in fundraising, which starts with rewiring our brains to be more uh successful with fundraising and so it's sort of this uh, self-fulfilling prophecy that happens or yeah. it sort of self-perpetuates. And then, yeah. of course, we know that they have a hard time keeping fundraising staff. And so – and I I get it. Like I have been there and very much wanted to leave. Um, and so, it, yeah, it, it becomes – uh, it, it just repeats itself over and over again. And I've seen smaller organizations. They'll hire a fundraising person for six months on contract. Yeah. They're not quote unquote raising enough money. They let them go. And because it was such a bad experience and reinforced all their existing beliefs, how yeah. bad fundraising is. Then they wait 18 months before they hire again. And then the exact same thing repeats. Someone comes for six months. Either they leave because they realize that they just don't have the patience to try and change, you know, change the direction of that ship, or they're let go, and it happens over and over again. So this is, I mean, I sometimes say like. The consulting that we do, in some ways, is some of the hardest because we exclusively work with small organizations. And my personal mission is to empower reluctant fundraisers to love fundraising. It's hard. It's hard work. But I'm so driven by how important it is. And I also know how amazing fundraising can be and feel if you embrace it and like it, that I'm willing to dedicate my career to this. So
1: doesn't the reluctancy. So at, at our firm, we talk a lot about organizational design. We say, you know, fundraising in many cases, if your organization is designed correctly, fundraising, specifically fundraising strategy, in many cases will take care of itself. And doesn't organizational design begin with sort of, because that's where we're talking about, like who you're hiring, your job descriptions, you know it it's sort of the interrelatedness between your development plan and your strategic plan and your board dynamics and governance policies is is part of knowing that you're working for a reluctant rate. Fundra- so you hire that 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 completely dysfunctional cycle that we've all seen especially people like you and I we've seen sort of happen over that you know 18 24 months of going from one development officer to another the, the the CEO, some of the work that I have enjoyed doing is working helping that CEO work through their reluctancy. But I gotta tell you, that's that's just getting that's sort of creating a different it's, it's, it's just habit building, Cindy. Mm-hmm. It's really just getting, so a couple of my clients as of late are, are really just paying me to, to, to accompany them, to journey with them as one of my previous guests, you know, journey towards the gift and sort of just journey with them and let them sort of observe that donor going through that process. And their reluctancy is sort of rooted in having never gone on that journey with a donor.
2: Absolutely. Um,
1: they're just scared to death of the whole process. Yeah. And they look at the donor like it's some kind of monster. And 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 so they don't understand that Mr. Or Mrs. Smith is not inclined to sit there and hijack your mission. And they, <laughs> they really just like the fact that Sally, their granddaughter is in your third grade class or something. And you just <laughs> have to sort of go on that journey with them.
2: Yes.
1: Um, but that reluctancy is also what keeps that gala in that golf tournament on the schedule. And that and that reluctance is also what makes the that individual completely incapable of supervising that development officer in any meaningful way.
2: Mm-hmm. Am I right? Oh yes, you are right. So you said <laughs> <laughs> you said one thing that I'm going to uh, pinpoint or highlight uh-huh. because I think it's really important. And you're kind of doing this work, and and you might not have been aware that you're actually working in the neuroscience space, but that's exactly what you're doing. You said it's habit building.
0: Yeah. You are
2: yeah. it's repeated exposure, right? And getting them over and over just going along that journey, baby steps along that journey. Habits are exactly how we retrain our brain and our thinking. And so that is that is the way we can start to shift people's reluctance and yes to all the other things.
1: Okay. <laughs> Okay, let's 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 take the last 10 10 15 minutes and let's have a real so there's a lot of conversations in our space about sort of the the way in which current the way philanthropy currently plays out that marginalizes, overlooks and ignores sort of the fundraiser's experience, right? Um, It puts us in these marginalized postures. It overlooks what you are. We're oftentimes so overwhelmingly concerned about the donor experience that we don't think about the fundraisers experience. And one of the pieces of advice that we're constantly saying here on this podcast is to, to young fundraisers is create those habits where your job description is focused almost exclusively as often as you can being in front of that donor. And how many of our listeners today, Cindy, are in these reluctant, we'll call them a reluctant culture, right? So it's either they themselves, their board, or the CEO that are feeling marginalized, overlooked. How many of them are in those sort of environments because because they have not developed those habits of getting in front of their donors? They're just not they're just they they 're just not just it 's like what you and I started this conversation with they 're not having coffee with their donors, yeah they won 't interact with these people
2: so I think there 's two things you touched upon one is that I think you 're talking about a hidden hidden reluctance of the fundraisers that they have maybe not experienced donor meetings like you and I have to know that yeah. they 're wonderful things um, yes, and so they haven 't really and there 's a lot of imposter syndrome and feeling like. Um, I'm in over my head or something like that. And I think that is a hidden reluctance where you if you're listening and that sounds like you you maybe need to take a a step back and think about the stories you're telling yourself about, and what are the excuses that are holding you back from having those meetings. But the other thing I want to speak to is marginalization within your organization because I've Definitely experience that where you do not have, I'm going to call them friends or peers in your organization and fundraising is this siloed function. And so that's another type of marginalization that happens because, again, all these people around you have all these reluctance beliefs around fundraising. They're like, oh, you know, just I don't want to do this. So you go off over there and do this and just don't come bother me about it. And I've seen that over and over again. Uh, And one of the first things when I used to work within organizations and now when we work with organizations, the first thing we do, and if anyone is listening, this is like the most important advice I could give any fundraiser. When you start a job or if you've been there for a while and you're just hearing this for the first time now, your first 90 days should be focused on connecting with your donors and your staff because you need to build those relationships. Your staff need to understand what you do and your do- you need to understand what your donors do. You need to understand what your staff does. Like these connections are actually, to me, the foundation of good fundraising and helps you break down those silos and reluctance of others so that they can start to be, you know, we can call it cultural philanthropy or what have you, but they can start to support you and you can support them in a much more meaningful and deep way, which I think is absolutely critical to your fundraising success, your job satisfaction, and your longevity at an organization.
1: So, doesn't that, doesn't, doesn't what you just said sort of loop us back to where we exactly started? A lot of, the reluctancy that sort of simmers within the entire culture, because not only because you just acknowledge the fact that it's 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 not just the fundraiser, the board, the CEO, but it's also everybody else who's employed with the organization. If if you think about some of the the conversations that have sort of simmered within our our fundraising community for the last year, especially, there's this. There's this fear, there's this underlying fear of the donor, and I'm like, okay, but if you're working in an organization that's completely reluctant to even get in front of that donor, you can't project all of this, like, like this person's literally going to try to leap across the table and hijack your mission and bite your head off sort of stuff. Um, I I know that there's jerks out there who want to totally do, all, I, I, know that the, I know that that's out there, but... But you've got to. We've got to sort of get on the other side of the idea that I don't. I don't know how fundraising is going to continue to mature. This is what I'm getting at here, Cindy. I don't know how. I don't know how fundraising is going to continue to mature if we can't get over the notion that our fund that our donors are some sort of a opposite of us. That it's some sort of combative us versus them sort mm-hmm. of thing. We've got to see ourselves on the same team. Yeah. And and the narrative that seems to be sort of playing out, and I'm, I guess I'm asking you if some of this is rooted mm-hmm. in the reluctancy, and I think that's kind of what you just said. Um, you've got to start seeing your donors on the same team and not that you're at odds with them and that you're competing with them. Mm-hmm. Am I right? Am I missing something? Yes.
2: So there's a lot. So it's interesting because you're talking about and what's been playing out in the sector is these dichotomies right And we think about yes. things in dichotomies so yes. we think about it as you know donor-centered philanthropy versus community-centered philanthropy yes we think about those who have money versus those who don't that yes i studied women's studies in university like the whole foundation of that is that dichotomies are fundamentally quite harmful and we can't think of them. We can't see the world in this way. It's much more complex. So you asked, you know, we need to see ourselves on the same team. hundred percent. I call it mission centered fundraising. What Uh are the commonalities? But we also, and this is where I think, um, I can, I can, um, appreciate the, um, The hesitations or um, critiques of what, you know, we'll call donor-centered fundraising um, is that sometimes there's a lot of pressure for organizations to pursue gifts or to go along with funders when they're not the right fit this idea of selling your soul comes up over and over again. It's in the title of the book. And I think those are all that ideas perpetuated again by some of the myths we have around fundraising that we're begging that we should be so grateful for any money that comes our way and be willing to say yes at whatever cost. I think you would agree that that is a harmful belief. Very much so. And, Absolutely, we should not. And so part of it is we have to rethink and rewire our thoughts around money in and of itself is not inherently good or bad. But we have to understand and make courageous decisions on when to walk away from money when it doesn't serve our mission. But I 100% guarantee all of our listeners, and I know you would agree with this, that there are people out there. Who are on the same page, who wanna support your mission, and who care about the work, start with those people and the money will come after. Um, and when it's not right, walk away.
1: Is there, is the, so, so here's a guy who's perfectly, uh, perfectly, perfectly aware of, like, uh, I'm a guy who, you know, straight white guy from the US. I've been, I was birthed and, and, and nurtured into dichotomies, right? I'm the perfect example of somebody who basically lived their entire first, you know, four decades of my life, basically, basically only being able to see the world through these dichotomies, right? Us versus them. It's just the way that I was taught to see the world is how do you, as we wrap up, how, do, how do we sort of know and understand that this reluctant is the, is the reluctancy fueling our reliance and our hinging on seeing all these di- dichotomies. Is that is there is there something in there that sort of just drives it?
2: Well, to me, the dichotomies is another one of those shortcuts our brain makes to make yeah, okay, seeing the right. world and experiencing the world easier and faster and less yeah. mental effort. And so, and we do this. We generalize. You know, we we there's so many examples of how these dichotomies um, just make the world simpler it's not you we're all taught this even yeah, how yeah. our sector is playing out this conversation it is the you know one versus the other and fundamentally i disagree with that principle um, but it is a way that our brain makes shortcuts to make things more simple and easier to understand easier to make decisions etc does that make sense
1: it makes perfect. So I've got this very good friend. I'm sure you're connected with Jennifer Harris on the, on the West Coast. So Jennifer and I are, we, we, uh, when it comes to simple dichotomies, she, she and I are so many, so many opposites. Um, it's not even funny, but yet she's the one who, when we're in conversation, she's constantly sort of saying, I don't think in dichotomies. And so it started, it's sort of, Constantly sort of getting hammered in my head because my impulse is to sort of just like you're talking about those habits have been sort of formed into my head to constantly rely on them. But 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 as you think about just our practice as fundraisers, we've we love dichotomies. We love having these very sort of categorical sort of categories that we can sort of plug people in because it sort of it, it it very simple. It simplifies our work Um but at the same time, it's. I think we're in the midst of a, a very messy and unpredictable world is, is the phrase I use in my new book. Um, goodness gracious, I don't think the dichotomies are going to work anymore. And I don't think it's going to help are the most reluctant of us of mm-hmm. us all, right?
2: Mm-hmm. I mean, I truly studied this in my undergrad when I was in women's studies. We studied feminism, which is all about yes. breaking down those the dichotomy. And then for my MBA, I took it in a program Uh, That was founded on this idea of integrative thinking, which is basically that there's we see these two solutions, but the best solution is a combination or hybrid of those. And it's finding the best of both and building a new model. And I uh... absolutely think that's where we need to go as a sector.
1: So, so we got to give some i I'm, I'm thinking that's Martin's program yeah. at uh, at Toronto.
2: Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm I read we know that. <laughs> uh, so,
1: so uh, uh Roger Martin Roger wrote a Martin, book that I'm
2: listening. Yes, I'm um, you, my friend.
1: <laughs> uh, uh when more is not better, uh overcoming America's uh, obsession with mm-hmm. economic efficiency. Yes, um, he's is is, a new book is book. one of his but there's there's also to, to there's there's also a the with the, the book about integrative thinking, there's a there's a woman in the design thinking world that I think he's done work with. Who is she?
2: Jen Jennifer Riel. Yes. I love yes. Jen. So I also had yeah. the pleasure of working with them. I worked at the school as well. Uh and they're brilliant. Uh Jen is now I think at IDEO and doing yes, really IDEO, cool yes. work. Um, yeah. I, hi- actually, that reminds me cause I want to get her on my podcast. Um, <laughs> but yes, these, y- and again, it's not, it, it, we are all hardwired to look and see the world in this way. It's not, we're not blaming anyone, but I think yeah. if we want to do better, we have to make the deliberate effort to start to. Break down those dichotomies and and find that new path forward that is um, gonna serve all of us better
1: I like it when I have my Canadian friends on the podcast <laughs> there's something uh, I've said this before i I really enjoy my uh, conversations with you all I think it's uh helping me keep my my Americanness in check my <laughs> my masculine Uh, all that, all that stuff that was born and bred into me. And I appreciate your graciousness, Cindy, Cindy, uh, the way I like to wrap up these conversations when I'm talking to consultants and certainly talking to an author, I want to, I want to remind everyone about your new book. I want you to tell people how we can find it. Um, but the other thing is, is my guess is there's somebody out there who's listened to our conversation today and they're inclined to reach out to you. Um, so after you after you point us towards the book and where they can get it, um, also tell us who you want to hear from cuz i bet there's somebody who's going to reach out to you tomorrow and start a conversation with you. I want to I want you to tell us who you want that to be.
2: Absolutely. So I'll start with the book, raiseitbook.com and if you use the code responsive, you'll get 10% off. And i if any of this resonated with you, please do reach out. I mean, i am as i mentioned a few times, we work with small nonprofits. Um, and so I love hearing from small nonprofits. I love teaching this and training my goals to get in front of as many reluctant fundraisers as possible. So if you're a reluctant fundraiser or if you want help working with reluctant fundraisers, you can find me at thegoodpartnership.com or that's the Good Partnership is usually our social media handles on most platforms, and I would love to help you or the people around you learn to love fundraising.
1: Cindy, it has certainly been a pleasure to our listeners. Uh, just look down in the show notes, and you uh, can find a link to order Cindy's book, and you can use the res- the code RESPONSIVE to get uh, 10% off of the new book. Uh, Cindy, it's always a pleasure. You're always welcome back. I do look forward to that cup of coffee.
0: Thank you. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The War for Fundraising Talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers.